Hi, this is Alexis Bernicki from the Great Lake Canadians, formerly of the Toronto Blue Jays, also Baseball America, Canadian Baseball Network. You are listening to the Jays Journal podcast with Ari Shapiro. Another edition of the Baseball Show with Ari Shapiro. You're listening to the Jays Journal Podcast. And my friends, I don't know what I can offer you from a monologue perspective for this show. I mean, really, I I don't know what to say. This has been a rough weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays. I had really hoped with the Oakland Athletics coming into town that it would be an opportunity for this team to assert itself to really look at all this bad news and frustration that was experienced over the course of the week and a half leading up to this long weekend and maybe push back, maybe do something to show that they've got a little bit of fight in him. But if you look at the numbers, they're not pretty. The Blue Jays were outscored 27-12 to during their four-game series with the Oakland Athletics. They were out-hit 44-23 to and out-homered 6-2. to And really, when all was said and done... It just turned out to be a good old-fashioned sweep at home by the road team, which is something the Blue Jays had not seen since the year 2001. So needless to say, if you're a fan of this team, it was a tough and trying stretch, and still is, because this team and its fans, all 108,000-plus that came out during the four games, which really isn't anything to write home about. I mean, it's the only game in town. And on a weekend where family and friends could all come out to enjoy and bask in the glorious weather, they could barely manage 30,000 a game. And this doesn't bode well for a team that struggles with attendance when they don't win. You know, there are rare exceptions, I suppose, in all sports where a team can be lousy or go through a tough patch and still get their fans to support them. This ain't one of them, folks. This market is fickle and filled with many bandwagon jumpers who are just waiting for the opportunity to either criticize this team and stay away or jump on the great parade that will form the moment they undergo an eight-game winning streak. You know how it is. And it's a real shame that we have reached this point where there are 115 baseball games left in the season. I mean, 47 games does not a season make. And what was particularly interesting about this year's edition of the Blue Jays team is that they actually started reasonably well and had a successful April It's just this May has been tough for so many reasons, and the biggest culprit is the lack of clutch hitting and the fact that a lot of players who are making a lot of money on this team are not getting it done. And so I suppose it would be easy to point them out. You know who they are. One of them pitched yesterday when he normally hits exclusively. And it's really reaching this point, I think, for a lot of fans where there's a crisis in confidence and as a result, a great deal of criticism across social media and this general sense of fatalism in the air. And I beseech you, don't be one of those. Don't fall into that trap. Sure, I'll be the first to point out some reasons for you to believe in some doom and gloom, but generally speaking, I'll contrast it with some of the positives. And this weekend did have some positives. It did have some performances and moments from players that were worth noting and being hopeful 
of, you know, in the case of Gio or Shula, came in and, and had a great performance a couple of games ago, and Jan Hervis Solarte showed up, and Sam Gaviglio showed up when called up to do what he needed to do, and Luke Maley continues to be hot. Never thought I'd say that. But unfortunately, there were also a lot of frustrating moments and a general lack of focus by this team. I mean, that fourth game I had the misfortune of being at in person and visiting the Dome and, and seeing for myself during that colossal stretch of not being able to hit and constantly being out hit during the entire afternoon. It wasn't until the end that they showed a little bit of life, but the defense in particular was harrowing to witness. I mean, Josh Donaldson and Richard Urena combined with the kind of spectacle, you know, they combined to deliver the kind of spectacle that you won't soon forget, and it just made you wonder, what are some of these moves that Gibby's making and how much flack he'll take? Because, as you know, there is a sizable fire, hashtag fire Gibby movement in this city, which is unfortunate because I don't see how you can blame the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays for the fact that, once again, this team is struggling with injuries, and once again, they're struggling with player regression in the form of the Russell Martins and the Kendris Moraleses of the world, and then, of course, you've got just general underachievement by players like Josh Donaldson and other players like Teoscar Hernandez, who's cooled off on both sides of the field, really. Not a lot of concentration there. And the hope is that, you know, with every peak and valley that we'll encounter during a long season, you'll have to just weather the storm. And I think that's what we're doing right now. We're dealing with a moment where it's always darkest before dawn. And as such, we have to stay confident and support this team, knowing full well that... Believe you me, there are a lot of character players in that locker room who do not enjoy losing. And even with their players meeting only moment, if you will, from a few days ago, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And even though this was an off day, the the team is bracing themselves for the Los Angeles Angels, knowing full well that that is the preeminent second wildcard team to beat at this time. That being said, let's turn to some positives in terms of some of the guests that I have for you on this episode of the Jays Journal podcast. First, we're visited, and it's my great pleasure to bring this gentleman on as I've been going back and forth with him, corresponding for what seems like almost uh, half a year. Homer Bush, former Blue Jays second baseman and World Series champion, is here to talk to me about his thoughts about the state of the game, as well as what sabermetrics meant to his career. And I'll give you a hint, it wasn't necessarily a positive thing. In fact, it was mostly a negative thing, because Homer Bush was a player who could hit and run, and has published a very successful book, and he's going to talk about how the game-changing impacted his career in a way that forced him to make adjustments, and many players that would now follow after his generation of baseball player in the early 2000s. Next, I have Alexis Brudnicki, formerly of the Toronto Blue Jays, who's now working with the Great Lakes Canadian Amateur Baseball Program, and she'll have a lot to say about not only the state of amateur baseball in Canada, but in particular her thoughts on Joey Votto's recent comments that unfortunately was blown up in social media and debated in every household, and I, I took a definitive look with her on what exactly it meant from his perspective as the best Canadian player ever. And to end the show, we've got a phenomenal roundtable I cobbled together, consisting of Chris Henderson from Jay's Journal, Brendan Panikar from Baseball Prospectus, and Richard Burfer from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, three writers with some great perspectives on a lot of the things that I've been covering as I've been going from radio appearance to radio appearance across the country, giving people my perspective of the Blue Jays, and I'm sure you'll find theirs to be indubitably intriguing. So buckle up. 
Take a moment, pour yourself a drink, get yourself a bite to eat if you have to, or maybe you're just sitting on the bus or in a car and listening to this, and get ready for this episode of the Jay's Journal Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You know, fans, it's always a pleasure to bring you interviews with players past and present. And in this case, I have to tell you how elated I am because my next guest is an author, a hitting coach, uh, a public speaker, uh, a former Blue Jays player, and also a World Series champion, which I think is really cool. Homer Bush is on the show. Homer, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Hey, no, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk with you today. Well, you know, we went back and forth for the longest time, and we're both busy fellows. But what I love is that as I'm watching from a distance to see when you and I can finally find time to sit down and, and, and talk on my show, I had a chance to read your start reading elements from your new book, which is called Hitting Low in the Zone, A New Baseball Paradigm by Homer Bush with Monica Greer. And I got to tell you, it's absolutely fascinating because in the liner notes and the description on social media, you use the phrasing, challenge the myth that pitching wins games. Well, I, um, I was a casualty of sabermetrics. My career was ended shortly because um, I didn't walk enough. So I have a son who's a um, uh, sophomore in high school. He loves baseball. So I was like, man, I better make sure he learns how to walk or he won't play very long because sabermetrics was, you know, they were going to be around forever and, it, you know, it wasn't going to change. So, I mean, that was an easy find there. Um, so, but when I got into it, I started seeing that the elite hitters were all having production below the strike zone. And so it became a volume-driven uh, research at that point. Talent is important, but for the most part, if you run a 4-4 or 4-6, um, hit a ball 350 feet compared to 390 feet or 400 feet, there's just not a difference in, in separation of uh, athleticism and talent. It's truly about being able to uh, maximize your volume of success when you're hitting. So in order to be able to do that, you've got to be able to hit in all three zones and, more importantly, down the zone. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that you were a casualty of sabermetrics because if somebody were to ask me today what I remember about Homer Bush when he was with the Blue Jays, I would immediately reply he could hit and he could run. So you would think (laughs) that a player whose reputation – would essentially be revolving around these basic fundamentals of baseball, right? Which is make contact and find a way to go station to station. Why is it that sabermetrics ended up being a challenge for you, considering the fact that at the time you were with the organization or any of them to be, re- you know, to be exact. I mean, when I look at your baseball card on the back of your proverbial baseball card, I see someone who had a 285 career average. I see someone who clearly when he was healthy, which is the operative word, because you did have some challenges, obviously, with your hip that led to your early retirement. It's not normal to leave baseball at 29. But it seems to me like you always dealt with that adversity because it was something in you right from the beginning, right? I mean, obviously, you were a natural-born hitter. Correct. And one thing I don't want to forget to touch on, but I'm going to answer your question about um, why sabermetrics are in such a dire need for walks, and that was cheaper payroll. So a guy like Mm. myself who could get a hit to get my average to 280 to 300, uh, but um, they were big one on base percentage. So – if my average only was 300 and I only walked a handful of times and I was at three, a 330 on base percentage, uh, it, metrics said, well, hey, we can get a guy that can hit 240 but walk 60 times and pay him $1 compared to the $2 we have to pay yeah. the guy who got the actual hit. So I totally understood the um, 
need to try to be uh, intelligent about how to save money. But at the end of the day, uh, there's a special skill, as we can tell from what's taking place today in baseball, the inability to make contact. Uh, you know, that's a special skill set. Like, you know, there's, you know, that's just something to be said about someone who can uh, hit a ball that they can't see uh, when the ball is halfway up on them, uh, put that in play more times than the average ball player. So uh, I think sabermetrics, I read something the other day where it was saying how money ball may not be what they thought it was. But the problem is so many people suffered from their experience. And I guess, Homer, we could argue that you we witnessed that during the free agency of this past year, where a number of really established major leaguers couldn't find employment because their, quote, splits, their sabermetric splits left little be to be desired. They would have either a low average or they wouldn't walk very much, and they would end up with a negative wins above replacement, which means why would a team give them a multi-year contract for $10, $15, 20000000 million a year? Correct. You know, one of the things I would um, uh, caution a lot of what's going on in baseball today is um, it's easy to find a deficiency in a player, right? So whether it be uh, didn't have enough power, strikes out too much, doesn't walk enough, um, you know, you can't find inefficiencies in the game of baseball when you're putting so many uh, players' careers at risk. Mm. There has to be a baseline. And the one baseline that I've been able to uh, have a better understanding of, and that is the ability to increase a player's production. Most of the time when a player can't produce, a team or a coach say, well, that player just doesn't have it. But at the end of the day, um, there is a large amount of success whether we come hit, whether it's hit the walks that can be had if you know what you're doing. And on the surface, Homer, it sounds to me like you're exactly the type of consultant I would hire if I had a struggling a struggling major league baseball team that was hitting say 230 and not walking, which is what today's Toronto Blue Jays are essentially all about. Have you had a chance to collaborate with them? Have they called upon you for any of your services, or have you had some exposure where maybe you could? send some of this wisdom to the big club of the modern day? No, I'll be honest with you. I have reached out to some teams, and the beauty of it is this. I have been able to share with teams where where they're lacking, but I do understand they have a plan, and they're going to usually travel in the direction in which they feel their plan is going to be successful. But the problem is why continue to do something that's not successful because when you don't think, the person that approached you is qualified. That's the problem I have with Major League Baseball. I can tell literally every Major League team to some degree where their problem lies, but they won't listen to me. And, hey, I'm cool with that because at the end of the day, when when the dust settles, they're going to realize that they were the reason why X amount of players weren't successful because they don't they don't know what they're doing in most cases. Homer, I don't think you'd need to convince me very much because the way I'd see it is I'd look at three components about you and your life that would make you someone worth listening to. The first one is something that maybe a lot of people don't know, that you didn't start as a baseball player. You were a football star. You were the kind of 
football star that the Illinois State High School football program will remember for the next 100 years because of all the great things you did in setting their records and then deciding after all of that success that you wanted to go into baseball and was ultimately drafted and ended up with the New York Yankees. Not just with the New York Yankees, you won a World Series championship with them. Do you sometimes look at your life and say it's been a semi-charmed kind of, you know, a uh, sequence of really good luck mixed with opportunity, even though it ended prematurely? Absolutely. And here's what's cool about my my path. Um, I had an opportunity to be around some really good people that taught me a lot. The best thing that could have happened to me was to um, uh, come off the bench on that 98 team because that year we had uh, Daryl Strawberry, Tim Range, Chili Davis, uh, you know, I was around starting, uh, you know, guys that were in the star lineup like Jeter, Williams, Mariano Rivera. So I got an opportunity to learn the game before I was thrust into the game to play every day. So I'm not really surprised the first year I got to play, I was able to hit 320 and have, you know, probably maybe the best um, uh, year of my career. Uh, and so that has led me to make sure when you're out of the game to continue surrounding yourself with good people that's going to help you make solid decisions. So, like you say, that, that semi-charm has really helped me long-term. Well, and it never hurts when you make a great first impression. And when you were traded to the Yankees back in 97 and played as a full-time baseball player for those 45 games in 98, you hit 380. So that tells me you were not only impressing the New York faithful, which is never easy to do because we know what it's like in, in the Bronx jungle, but at the <laughs> same token, you, 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 were, you were basically presenting yourself as an asset when ultimately being traded to the Toronto Blue Jays. And it's funny, I remember the Clemens deal for yourself and David Wells and Graham Lloyd. And I can tell you when it happened, everyone was irate and angry and frustrated and thought that the Blue Jays were fleeced. But when you look at what the three of you did, yourself in particular for the three years you played for the team, it was clear that you, you were meant to be a baseball player. And if not for the injuries, you could have definitely extended this career much longer, I would think. You know, I appreciate that. And one of my biggest regrets uh, playing for the Blue Jays, one, was not being able to fill the void at second base once Robbie left. Uh, and the other mm. one was um, I couldn't stay healthy. And, uh, you know, I was starting to get pretty expensive. Sabermetrics rolled around. It was the perfect storm to say, hey, let's go in a different direction. So I understood the business side. And really, Homer, who was going to fill those shoes Second base. I, I, I don't think they have been to this day, really. I mean, I would argue that if you were to ask the average Blue Jays fan who their favorite post-second, post-Roberto Alomar second baseman was, I can tell you your name makes a lot of people's lists for the very reason that we already talked about. You were a smart hitter at the plate. You knew how to play contact-oriented station-to-station baseball, and you could steal a base at will. And that's a real rarity in this day and age, especially with the local folks, let me tell you. No, I appreciate that. And you know what? I do. Uh, I come up to um, Canada a lot. Still, I do still um, involved with the Jays. And man, the, uh, the good people of Canada show me show me love big time every time I come mm-hmm. back. Now, of course, I mentioned three things. I talked about the fact that you started in one sport and successfully turned into an accomplished player in the other, which is rare. I mentioned the fact that you played for the New York Yankees and won a World Series championship, so you've got the experience to be able to tell people you should probably listen to me. But the third reason, which I'm sure you've heard more than you care to admit, 
is the way people enjoy what is arguably one of the greatest names in baseball. I mean, I can bring up Oil Can Boyd and Goose Gossage and, and even, uh, you know, Jolt and Joe DiMaggio, maybe some less uh, common names like Mordecai Three Fingers Brown. But how do you go wrong with Homer <laughs> Bush? I mean, honestly, you obviously are aware from your entire life that that is something that no matter whom I mention it to, and I, I spoke with a lot of media types before we sat down to talk this afternoon, and I mentioned your name. What do you think they all said right off the hop? They said, that is the greatest name in baseball. <laughs> i tell you what. I took so much grief when I was younger. Man, it had to balance out <laughs> being good to me as an adult, right? <laughs> For sure, no, you for know, sure. It's amazing because it's a family name. I'm actually named after uh, um, one of my uncles on my mom's side. And who would have thought? I'm sure when they when they uh, did what all parents do, which is give their their child the name, that they would ultimately end up gravitating to arguably the perfect place for people to appreciate that. Um, sp- speaking of people appreciating what's happening today. Um, Give me give me your thoughts about these 2018 Blue Jays. As you can imagine, I talk about them almost 24-7. I go on different radio stations. I write articles. I have podcasts. But I love being able to speak with someone like yourself who's so near and dear to the game and experienced it firsthand as a professional athlete. What's your impression of this organization and the direction it's heading in today? You know, I said in um, spring training that I like the way the roster was constructed. One of the things I learned from – uh, going from the Yankees to the Blue Jays, is that if you put a lot of young talent together, then you create a uh, a highly competitive environment. And, you know, I know every everybody wants to do well, but when you know that your job is not solidified, like you tend to dig a little deeper, uh, deal with a little bit more of adversity, and you stay on the field a lot often. It's fascinating to hear you say that because you played in an era where there was still a lot of luster constructed from the, quote, glory years when the city won a championship. It's interesting that I'm asking you this question now at a point where we're headed to, you know, a quarter of a century of futility. A lot of mediocre teams, a lot of promises delivered by ownership and fans ending up flummoxed and angry. That expectation that existed when you were patrolling second base in the same barn, the same, which is now a horribly retro barn, because you and I know it's not normal for 30-year-old structures in baseball to still be as fresh and exciting as they could be, right, with the Blue Jays. I mean, 2015, I'm sure you were tuning in and wondering, holy cow, we're back in 1993. Do you think the city still has the potential to ever reach anywhere near what they experienced in those, you know, heady days in 93 and 92, as well as what they experienced for like 50, 60 days in 2015? I do. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I know I have a lot of negative things to say about sabermetrics, but I also have a lot of positive things to say about sabermetrics. Mm. And it, wor- it works. And if you, you know, when you have really intelligent people like the Blue Jays do run their front office, and this is just not just kissing up, they really have um, some well educated people running their front office, uh, along with many organizations, don't get me wrong, but. If you get the right person to look at the data and it gives you an, a clear advantage, I think what they're doing now, coupled with that, I'll give you an example. This is how I foresee things shaking out for the Jays. And, hey, mm-hmm. it's just my opinion, right? Say, for instance, 2018 is over. You don't make the playoffs, but you have a good year. And you can get five, six, seven very solid players, you got a couple young guys that's coming up, 
you go out and get a couple big name players. So you're building a very uh, like a strong midsection, and you can fill it from the bottom and the top. And to me, uh, you know, home runs are going to play in, in the uh, uh, Rogers Center. Um, I'm thinking from the top, the more veteran, experienced pieces are going to be pitching. Um, and the younger, exciting players coming up from the bottom, along with what you figure out you have from the 2018 season, I think that will immediately make you a contender. With the with the two wild cards, you just never know what can happen. Does that maybe sometimes irritate you that there really are some extraordinary chances to get to the postseason today that didn't exist when you played? I mean, it's one thing to expand the playoff format um, as the Blue Jays experienced, you know, going from five games to seven when they were in the postseason in 1985, and then creating one wild card and then creating a second wild card. Do you sometimes look at the way baseball is constructed today and say to yourself, there really shouldn't be any excuse if you're spending a reasonable amount of money to build your team properly to get a shot at a second wild card spot? You know, I actually think it um, it, allow, it, it, it encourages teams to spend to try to get to the mm. postseason because you can get there so easily. Uh, but – no, I totally understand your question because, like, I'm looking at I'm, I live in Texas and I'm looking at the Texas Rangers. Yeah, I would I would honestly say I know they're having injury issues, but there may be this little hey we have a new stadium coming in 2020. Um, Houston's on top of their game. New York is doing some crazy things as well. You know we're gonna you know we're gonna put a good put forward a good effort, but let's see what we have to build on so that we can create something in 2020 that can give us an exciting run for about three or four or five years. We're, we're getting an opportunity to see what pieces we need to add, which pieces we need to subtract. So um, I think the Texas Rangers have an awesome uh, plan going on as well. You, know, you can kind of get a feel for what clubs are doing based on, um, you know, how they're spending their money and uh, how many young guys they actually call up during this youth movement. That's a fascinating point because it all is reflected on the amount they're willing to spend. And then at that point, if you assume that a mid-market team is spending between 120 to $160 million, that's a lot of payroll to try to take your existing young draft commodities and sign the players to get better. And we know it doesn't always work. I mean, you look at the Baltimore Orioles. You never would have expected that this team would be this bad with the amount of money they're spending it all comes down to talent management. And I'm thinking about when you played for the Toronto Blue Jays, there were some really great young, talented players that you were introduced to. I mean, you came up in the era where players like Carlos Delgado and Shannon Stewart and Sean Green and then Vernon Wells and Roy Halladay and Chris Carpenter were developing and becoming the stars that they ultimately were. Why didn't it work in the three years you spent with Toronto at a time where I'm sure you remember there was a lot of pressure. People weren't happy. It had now been almost 10 years since they didn't win a World Series championship, and there was the sense of, are we getting better? How did you feel as a Toronto Blue Jay when you played as to the direction of the team? Was everything being done to really make them better, or did you feel like maybe something else should have been introduced into the equation for success? You know, I'll tell you what, in 2000... um, uh, 99, it was 99 or 2000. I can't remember. We were we were in the hunt. When we got Mondesi, we were in the hunt in, like, June. Right? I remember, like, June, we were in first place 
uh, over the Yankees. And um, so we, they were, uh, the front office was definitely trying to put some pieces out there to get it done. But the problem was you were up against a giant, uh, the Yankees, a couple of giants, oh, yeah. the Yankees and Red Sox were just on the top of their game. So, I mean, the rubber band only stretched so far, right? So they were, um, you know, were hoping to, um, you know, get some things done on a big scale. But here's where I personally think if everything could have come together when we, when we were to, when we were, uh, myself and Roy and uh, Chris Carpenter, we had Shannon Stewart, Delgado. I mean, we had a awesome crop, but we just didn't flourish at the right time. We all was, we all at the top of our game at different times. And so and for me, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I would say, yeah, we all, like if we could have all come together and been on top of our game, I mean, we definitely, definitely could have uh, done some big things. And win the World Series, I don't know. But look at the careers that these guys went on to have. Delgado, Cruz Jr., Shannon Stewart. I mean, like, these are like household names. Uh, and just imagine how big they would have gotten if we've been able to win 95 to 100 games uh, a year at that time, which was almost what you needed to do to get to the postseason. I guess you could argue, Homer, that the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Today it's the same thing. It's the Yankees, it's the Yankees, it's the Boston Red Sox once again as barriers to the division. And I guess you've just kind of identified the similarities between the teams you played for and the ones that exist today, which is, you know, $160 million. It's not, it's not the payroll that puts you in the same conversation with, with the two juggernauts in the AL East, but you can see how this team is once again torn between spending enough to try to put fans in the seats and cultivating enough talent. So hopefully fans don't lose interest because, you know, you and I are speaking today here on, on May 16th and the Blue Jays come into action at 500. I'm sure for the average fan, it's that being torn between what is and what could be. How, how do you reconcile a fan's perspective on, hey, things will get better. And in the meantime, you're probably going to struggle with your loyalties. How do you, how do you get them to maybe calm down and realize that we're trending in the right direction? And I guess that really is the most important thing when you look at the barometer of your team and management. Well, knowing that fans are passionate and emotional, I mean, I think organizations um, need to do a better job of communicating with their fan base. It's one thing to say it in a couple press conferences, hey, you know, mm-hmm. we're, you know this is the direction of the organization. Um, you know, I think these are the times where uh, to secure those funds and that unwavering support, you've got to let them know what you're doing because then maybe they can see the pattern as it's forming because if you're just saying it and you're going out and you're losing, people lose patience. I remember reading something on the White Sox the other day where they're going through this youth movement and they were just adamant about how, you know, we're going to be okay, we're going to be okay. It's like, well, I, we get that part. The part I want to understand is what's okay? What does okay look like? <laughs> right? So, like, do they really know um, in two years they're going to be heavy in the, you know, buying for free free agents to go with the pieces that uh, eventually, um, you know, develop this season? Um, you know, I, I just, I, I understand the fans' perspective now because I watch baseball every day, all day. And some organizations, I just don't know what they're doing. It's it's just literally like they're just 
filling positions and hoping for the best, uh, but not knowing if they're going to increase, they're going to spend more money the following season. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I just feel bad for the, the baseball fan today because for me, um, I've always known baseball as teams going out to compete at least uh, two-thirds of them. You, you just wouldn't have uh, two-thirds trying to figure out how they can uh, develop young pa- talent at the major league level when you're competing with your beast in your division. Homer, if the Blue Jays brass or any major league organization in baseball has any sense, they'll take the time and listen to you because you're clearly someone who has a real passion for the game. And it, it resonates in this conversation, and I'm sure my listening audience would agree. Tell them what you've been up to and how they can find you on social media and maybe some information about your book that we should be aware of moving forward. You know, I, um, uh, I've really been at this sabermetrics really hard. Um, the thing that I look for is um, how to simplify sabermetrics for people. And on the offensive side, it's walks and hits. Um, you have three zones they can be in. It's the bottom part is the over the plate or up. Over the plate and the bottom tends to um, be more fruitful. So, uh, so I've, ever since then, it's been happening year after year, year after year. So I know there's something there. Uh, I can be reached at homerbushbaseball.com, uh, and uh, also I'm at uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Bush Homer or Homer. I'm on the Homer Bush uh, on Facebook. And um, just hit me up, uh, send me some videos. I would love to uh, show you how I'm able to simplify a lot of, you know, like um, analyzing vid- uh, hitters' uh, videos. I, try, I don't mess with pitching too much, uh, but I really can get after that hitting and try to make it boil it down to just milliseconds where people understand what they need to do to develop and get better. Don't worry about mentioning pitching too much. We talked about it during the off season for God knows how long, and look how it all turned out. It's been a struggle from day one. So I would rather we focus on the hitting because <laughs> I think I think your book is is right on the we're on the path where the Blue Jays should be heading. Let me ask you before I let you go: Which player on the Blue Jays right now today closely maybe adheres to your philosophy and methodology when it comes to your book? You know, I tell you, uh, Hernandez. Um, Teoscar, I figured. Teoscar, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what's amazing, Justin Smoke. I, I I get a lot of my information from BrooksBaseball.net and Baseball Savant. If you study Smoke's production, you will see his career took him off, took off once he was able to handle the bottom part of the strike zone better and bottom of the strike zone and below better because they increased his volume of production, not so much his strength or his ability to hit more home runs. He was able to be more proficient on pitches slightly down outside the strike zone. But um, as far as the swing mechanics, uh, Mr. Hernandez, he, he's, uh, he's on point. If you look at his home run today, prime example. Absolutely. And it reminds me, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't it give you that kind of, knowing that he's a Dominican player, he reminds me very much of George Bell, the way he pulls that bat through the zone. You know that even if he pops it up, it's going to be a loud out. He gets his money's worth when he's set on attacking the, the baseball. That's a great point. And what it is, uh, what pretty much what the hitting uh, philosophy is kind of uh, leaning towards is that basically during the 70s, 80s, in early 2000s and definitely before the 70s, hitting was hit in a different way. The perception is that people have been swinging down on the ball, but that's not even 
that's not the, the case. That's uh, actually ridiculous to think you can swing down on a baseball and have it go 400 feet. But, hey, you know, who am I? I'm just a kid from East St. Louis. But basically we changed. For some, somewhere between the, the late 90s and the 2000s, early 2000s, we changed um, uh, the hitting, hitting styles. Why, I don't know. But um, if they go back and study guys like George Bell, they'll see hitting has always been uh, slight um, with an arc in the swing as opposed to swinging down. Well, and it's it's with that kind of knowledge when you ask who you are that I can safely tell you that in the eyes of many of my audience, you are a, a great second baseman that this franchise was lucky to have and a World Series champion, and that makes me a really lucky and fortunate interviewer today, let me tell you. So, Homer, I, I, can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I hope to have you back on my show again. We, we do all sorts of uh, roundtables and other interviews of subject matter that, that plays out. And I can tell you, when it comes to hitting, the science of hitting, the, the philosophy behind it, you are definitely someone that I'd love to chat with again in the, in the hopefully near future, my friend. Thank you for doing this today here on the Jay's Journal Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, and I appreciate all the kind words. Next on the baseball show, on what's been a really eventful day, is someone that I've had on the show before, someone who was on my 2017 year review show. She knows I'm a huge admirer. Her name is Alexis Brudnicki. She's currently with the Great Lakes Canadians, which is an elite amateur baseball program in southwestern Ontario, formerly with your Toronto Blue Jays. And by the way, she's also a baseball writer and an anthem singer. Did I get that all right, Alexis? Am I, am I on the course here? <laughs> Yeah, you definitely did. Thank you. That's a very kind introduction. Well, it's it's just great to have you on the show again. And uh, the reason I wanted to speak with you, uh, especially for my listeners, was that there were a couple of things that happened over the last few days that I thought were noteworthy. And I know you have a strong opinion about it. And I want to start, of course, with uh, Joey Votto being in the news. Some comments he made after what was a bizarre week of really bad things that happened to the Blue Jays, right? I mean, they lost their prospect in Nate Pearson to injury. Roberto Suna got arrested. They got no hit by James Paxton and then lost to the Boston Red Sox. But some of that residue that I was hoping we could put behind us came into play when Votto made his comments regarding Canadian baseball. Now, I know you had some tweets about it. I want to get your take on this whole rigmarole. Is it really worth still talking about, or did we learn anything from the whole experience? Uh, I mean, I think for me, obviously, I, I have an emotional attachment to Canadian baseball. Canadian baseball really has been everything to me from playing when I was a kid to loving the Blue Jays for my entire life to working for the Blue Jays to getting involved in writing about Canadian baseball and to introducing me into a whole new side of the game that maybe I hadn't experienced before. And so I definitely have a huge attachment to Canadian baseball. I've seen the difference that the Canadian junior national team can make that showcases in Canada can make for young players who are trying to go play in American colleges who are trying to be seen before the draft. Um, and I think that my affinity for Canadian baseball is something that has widely been matched by everyone else I've met in Canadian baseball. It's a really tight knit community. People are very accepting. Um, for me, especially as a female in a male dominated industry, Canadian baseball is really the one place I've always felt comfortable. Um, I've always felt welcomed. I've always 
felt kind of important, I guess, that my voice is heard and that I have a place that I belong. And so to come across so many people who are such advocates for the game in Canada, for players from Canada, it just kind of makes you feel like everyone feels that way. And I think it's the reason that the game is growing as well. The people I work for right now are guys who played in the major leagues, who played for Team Canada, who are from Canada and are now giving back to the game and have started this elite amateur program for Canadians. And so to hear what Joey Votto had to say Mm. really was tough. It really is tough. I know that in his explanations later, he said that, you know, maybe Canadian baseball didn't give everything to him that he wanted it to. But, you know, and there there were feelings of jealousy. But I think when he walked it back, he realized that there were some pieces of Canadian baseball that did give to him. I mean, he played for the Etobicoke Rangers. Maybe he did not make the Canadian junior national team. And that's something that hurt him or cut him deeply. But he was seen enough with the Etobicoke Rangers to be a second-round pick in the 2002 draft. Like, Joey Votto, maybe he wasn't picked by the Toronto Blue Jays, which was another thing he kind of mentioned that maybe he had bitterness about. But he was a second-round pick. He wasn't a schlub who got forgotten about, who was completely overlooked. Do I think that the talent right now that he has shown matches what a second-round, what we expect from a second-round pick? I mean, probably not. He could have been, you know, number one overall, but... I mean, that's the beauty of the draft. You never really know what's going to happen. But it wasn't like he was passed over, and it wasn't like he had to go to the States to become that second-round pick. And I know a lot of scouts who saw him in high school have said now and lately that maybe they did make a mistake with him and they didn't see enough of what he has become. But that's easy to say in retrospect. So, I mean, for me, it just kind of – it did cut deeply. I did – I mean, maybe I didn't take it completely personally, but I took it as – an insult to Canadian baseball and as someone who covers Canadian baseball, who is an advocate for Canadian baseball, who's a fan of Canadian baseball, who's a fan of Joey Votto. Um, I mean, that was tough. And I am glad he kind of, he apologized. He walked it back. He, he realized what he said had a bigger impact than I am sure he thought it was going to have. No doubt. And and even with the mea culpa, there's no doubt that this will be still talked about and digested in a very hyper social media age, right? You you can't really get away with saying something that comes from an emotional place, which I think you'll agree was not unreasonable. He probably turned on the television to see James Paxton with his uh, Maple Leaf tattoo, no hit, the only Canadian team in the galaxy on a night when Russell Martin, a Canadian baseball player, is playing third base and probably thought to himself, what am I, Swiss cheese? I'm only, in the last 10 years, arguably the most legendary hitter in the game for my ability to get on base and blow out all sorts of modern-day splits and sabermetrics. So I guess we can't kind of blame him for being bitter, but obviously he made a critical error in the way that he dealt with his emotions, you could say. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And for me, too, like it just shows there is so much coverage of what he said in the first place and his apology afterward that it's crazy to me that there's not that much coverage of Joey Votto or of Canadian baseball outside of the Blue Jays or Canadian players any other time. Like unless they make a huge mistake or have a huge accomplishment, like, James Paxton was had a pretty good game before that no-hitter, too. He struck out 16 guys, and I don't really 
recall seeing or hearing about it that much in the Canadian media. And Joey Votto has done so many things, and he's just kind of a consistently great player that you only hear about it when he, like, wins awards or does something huge or messes up in some kind of way. And for me, like, these outlets that were felt slighted or made comments about Joey Votto are they're not covering Canadian baseball the majority of the time anyway like I've never heard them you know kind of mention the draft prospects coming from Canada we have some some guys who could go high in the draft this year really high and I think that's important and they don't cover the guys in college in high school in I don't know even I mean maybe not independent ball but I I just think that there's there's all kinds of Canadian baseball stuff going on that we are really missing out on. And it is unfortunate that it gets really blown out of proportion when it's something negative, too. Well, and I, I will always agree with you, Alexis, on how uh, underrepresented Joey Votto is to the baseball public here in Canada. There's no doubt for what he's accomplished and for the kind of player he is. Would you ever entertain any thought or desire for the Blue Jays front office to make a play to get him should things unfold as a result of either not making progress with signing uh, a contract for for Josh Donaldson or having to make some trades? Could you ever see a scenario where the Blue Jays brass might say, you know, this guy's locked up until 2023. He is the greatest Canadian player on earth why don't we get him to finish out his career and kind of reap the benefits of both a, a still a productive player and, and a steady presence in Canadian baseball? Oh, heck yes. I mean, why wouldn't a team want a great player? And really, that's kind of what they did with Russell Martin, too. I mean, it's obviously not the same idea, but yeah, if you can get a great player anytime, why not get a great player? I mean, even if he holds your money down for a while, um, obviously there's a huge advantage to having that player while they're great. No question, no question about that. So I'm going to put you down as officially endorsing the trade for Joey Votto movement that I will personally commandeer on social media, and, and we'll see what kind of what kind of discussion that creates. Alexis, before I let you go, I, I wanted to talk about an article I came across recently that I thought was beautifully written, and much to my surprise, it had your name on it in the sense that it went way back. I didn't even know that you were writing about the Blue Jays back then, but you wrote a fantastic article for Sportsnet involving the Lansing Three, and immediately my head began to like wander, and the nostalgia fell in when I saw Noah Syndergaard, and I thought about the Dickey trade, and then I felt like mm-hmm. I had an upset stomach. I thought maybe it was an ulcer. <laughs> As a Blue Jays fan, it could be a myriad of medical conditions. Please tell me, Alexis, how do fans reconcile the fact that once upon a time we had Justin Nicolino, um, Aaron Sanchez, and Noah Syndergaard in the organization, and now we're left with one whose agent is Scott Boris? Not a happy ending. (laughs) I mean, I think when players are in Lansing, which is where I got a chance to talk to those guys, they're far way away from the big leagues. While you want to dream on, you know, every successful player from Lansing or Dunedin or Bluefield coming up to the major leagues and making the same kind of impact that they've had at that level. Um, I mean, that's obviously what everybody wants. That's the whole idea. But I do, I do think, you know, there, there are risks, there are rewards, and it just kind of depends on, what you want to do in the moment, how long you want to wait as an organization, and what the plans are for the future. And I think 
obviously they saw talent in those players. That's why they drafted them. That's why they had them together. That's why they had them working on the routines that they were working on. Um, that's why they were piggybacking at the time. And I mean, that's why they did everything they did. And everybody wants them to be successful and wants them to make it. But I mean, to be fair, you really don't know how that's going to end up. And if you can trade for pieces that you believe are going to be beneficial to you in the moment, that's something an organization needs to do. And if it works out or it doesn't, it's easy to say, like, that was a great move or that was a terrible move later. But it's really hard to know how that's going to work out. I mean, they also had Anthony DiScofani, who is a big leaguer, but he is kind of up and down. I mean, Justin Nicolino's in AAA right now. So it's it's easy to see Noah Syndergaard pitching and be like, he could have been on my favorite team. Why is he on my favorite team? But it, it's also easy to say that, you know, there were wins that the Blue Jays created from those trades that were beneficial to the team at that very time. Oh, I couldn't have put it better myself. Sometimes you just... You just, you know, you take the risk. You know that there will always be some kind of fallout when a draft pick doesn't work out or whether a vaunted player starts slowing down and disappears or even freak things that we talked about this past week on my show, like the the disappearance of Ricky Romero. Who would have thought that a pitcher like Marcus Stroman, after everything he'd established, would struggle this mightily? Baseball is ridiculously fickle, isn't it? No matter what level you're at, amateur or professional. It's crazy. And I mean, you never, you never know where anyone's going to end up. Like Joey Votto, like I said, is a second round pick. Mike Piazza was a 60 second round pick. You really don't know what's going to happen. Kevin Pillar was on that same team in Lansing and he's been in the big leagues for multiple years steadily. And Justin Nicolino and Anthony DiScofani have not. So, I mean, and he was a 34th round pick out of a division two college. So it is it's baseball is so hard to predict. Every, every I think the thing that every team and every person involved wants most is that crystal ball. And I think you just have to kind of you have to take the risk where you can and reap the benefits as when they come. If anybody knows anything about prophecies, Alexis, it's you. And that's why I'm definitely gonna have you on my show again, hopefully even sooner than before because it's always a pleasure to chat baseball with you. Uh, why don't you give yourself an opportunity to tell my listeners about the Great Lake Canadians program and, and where they can find you on social media? Yeah, on Twitter, my name is at Baseball Lexis, uh, Baseball, E-X-I-S. Um, on Instagram, it's just Alexis for Nikki. But right now, I'm working for the Great Lake Canadians. Like you said, an elite amateur program out of London, Ontario, which is where I am from. We have teams from the 14U to the 18U age group, and I think it's just a super exciting program. Um, it's built around development. It's run by Canadian players who played in the major leagues and who have come back home after their playing careers have ended, and they want to give young players right now a chance to develop and have more opportunities than they did when they were their age. So they play in the best league in probably the country, the Canadian Premier Baseball League. There are tons of scouts um, and schools coming out. Some Our players have some really good commitments, um, including Mississippi State, Harvard, um, Indianapolis. They're kind of all over the place, and it's super exciting. It's a super exciting time, and we're just a couple weeks away from the draft, and we have some guys who, who might – Garner up some draft interest as well, and definitely from the Canadian Premier Baseball League, we will see players drafted. Um, last year, there were four players drafted out of the league. Um, 
So it's super exciting. I really, really enjoy the development side of the game. I just love baseball all around, but to see these guys so excited, so young, so happy for these opportunities in college and pro ball, it's just a really, really great place to be and a great place to work. Alexis, I can hear it in your voice, and anyone who's a fan <laughs> of baseball will be able to share this enthusiasm. They know how to find you. You've got to follow her on Twitter because it's the best thing you can do. Alexis, thanks for chatting with me this afternoon. We'll talk again soon for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Let's jump into this. I'm going to go around the horn here and introduce everyone. We've got Brendan Panikar from Baseball Prospectus, Richard Burfer from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, and our very own Chris Henderson from the Jays Journal. In a season where there has been a lot of redeeming moments. I mean, this team has shown that they've got pop. They can hit home runs. They can especially hit home runs after the seventh inning, which is really admirable. But in a year where the team is hitting about 230 and they're not getting any starting pitching. Oh, it's all, a lot of that is probably props to the bullpen. Uh, I mean, without the bullpen, you wouldn't have the opportunity to come back in the seventh inning or the eighth inning because if we had the same bullpen, from April and a little bit of May from, from last year, we'd probably have about the same record as last year. It's been amazing how much production and value that they've gotten from the minor league signings in the offseason of uh, Tyler Clifford and, and John Axford. John Axford's really figured it out. He's starting to use that two-seamer a little bit more. And, and Tyler Clifford, uh, he's only given up three runs all year and all three of them solo home runs, so he's really been been quietly dominant even though he really doesn't throw very hard and you got a lot of other quality arms down there so even though the rotation hasn't been up to snuff outside of Jay Happ uh, I mean one start uh, against Seattle last week wasn't so good but he's been the the horse and as Richard mentioned a little bit of uh, Aaron Sanchez as well mixed in there but um the bullpen really stabilizing things as soon as the starters get knocked out of the game has allowed the offense to come back uh, through April and a little bit in May. So props to the bullpen. I think that's probably the biggest reason that they've been uh, able to sustain a little bit of a, a good May and, or sorry, good April and then uh, keep it going to the point where they're still a little bit over 500 in, in May. Yeah. I'd have to agree with you guys both. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been pretty incredible just to watch what, uh, you know, I really wondered what this bullpen was going to be like this season, uh, you know, just going into it with a couple of minor league signing guys and, you know, losing Dominic Leone. And, and uh, I've never been a big fan of Aaron Loop, so going in with one lefty and being just him, I, I did not expect the numbers that we've seen from this group at all. Um, but, you know, I was equally, so I've been equally surprised by how poor the rotation has been, too. So it's uh, baseball never ceases to amaze me. And the concern right now is, is how long can the bullpen keep this up if, starters keep pitching four or five innings a game and the relievers have to come in and save the day how long can they keep keep up this steady pace well that's the thing i think i saw the other day uh from ben nicholson smith or uh one of the sportsnet writers i think tyler Clippard, the last time that tweet went out was on pace for over 80 appearances obviously that can't happen john axford was around the same and, and other key cogs in the bullpen were around the same you know that really opens up another discussion now that we've kind of seen the Joe Biagini starting experiment not work out the past little while, whether you put him back in the bullpen to be your long guy that that bullpen's really desperately craving. Um, it definitely becomes more and more intriguing, uh, especially if the starters don't pick it up a few more times through the rotation and rely on Joe Biagini for a time through the, 
through the order when he comes in, can rely on him for two to three innings at most, make him a 100-inning reliever. That's what I was clamoring for at the beginning of the year. That being said, who would you who would you move out of the pen right now? I mean, everyone's been pitching really well. And, I mean, do you really think that Biagini can sustain um, that sort of success that he had a couple of years ago back in the bullpen? It depends. I guess he, he's looked all right one time through the order. Um, mm-hmm. as he starts out and last year he's been able to show he can get a lineup out once he just really can't flip it over and you know, the the obvious guy to go down right now he's been all right since he's been up here hasn't really got that ground ball moving as Patrichka so swap out Patrichka for Biagini and, and see what he got in the bullpen there yeah I'd be totally in favor of that too and and for me I mean I understand the Blue Jays want to keep the starting depth that they do have is, if Biagini is a piece of that because there really isn't a huge amount of guys. I mean, there's the Ryan Barucchis and there's, and there's and there's a few other guys that have thrown well. Sean uh, Reed Foley's finally putting together a nice season, and Jordan Romano's pitched really well. Um, but they don't really have a lot of options, so I understand their reluctance. But uh, at the same time, uh, losing Osuna for for an indefinite period of time really makes me feel like there's more of an urgency to move Biagini to the pen. And I feel like we know that he's going to be a lot success more successful there. He certainly his splits have been between starting and being in the bullpen in the past have definitely. Definitely been in huge favor of the pen. Now, all, all three of you have written extensively uh, on starters and relievers coming through the minor league systems, being acquired by the big club. And I'm sure it's not unusual to see that in trying to convert a reliever into a starter, it doesn't always work out. Here's my question, and feel free to jump in, whoever wants to grab this first. Have the Blue Jays broken Joe Biagini? Have the Blue Jays put him in a position where he's lost some confidence? And that's what I'm seeing right now whenever he starts. I see a pitcher who still has those great pitches, but he just seems uncertain, unsure of himself. He seems like a lot of the poise that he had as a high-leverage reliever has been completely misplaced in the way that he's approaching uh, a typical lineup once, twice, third time through. What do you think about that? Could they have damaged him permanently? I don't think it's happened yet. Like, I don't know that it's a permanent thing by any means at this stage. I mean, we will see. Time will tell. But um, to me, it's it's when you start bouncing them back and forth and back and forth. And for the most part, he's been used as a starter, you know, since last year. Obviously, he did have a stint in the bullpen, but it was brief. And I feel like if they move him to the bullpen and then back to the rotation one more time, then they're, then they're seriously running into the, the danger of becoming like a Brandon Morrow situation. Or, yeah. you know, there's been other guys like Natalie Feliz, um, whose careers have fallen apart. Uh, what was his name? Uh, in Boston there a few years ago, Daniel. Uh, Daniel Bard. Out out here. Yeah, Daniel yeah. Bard. You know, you, you see these guys, uh, you know, bouncing back and forth isn't isn't good for them. So, uh, I would ultimately like to see, you know, I'm happy that they haven't done that anymore since they did it once last year. And I, and uh, I wouldn't like, I would be, wouldn't be opposed to moving to the pen and just leaving them there for good. But that's my, my opinion. In terms of be a genie, something to even think about is maybe because he was so good in his first year. Uh, maybe it's just because the MLB just didn't have enough information on him because he came in as a rule five guy and nobody really knew a lot about him and he found success sure. early on, but you bring him in the second year, there's more information on him. He's He's been struggling. There's been a lot of talk about how he tunnels his pitches, how everything kind of looks different. And another thing would be a genius. If you kind of take a look at how he pitches, he always keeps the glove out, not not close to his belt. So maybe that also tips pitches um, in in his games. And, and guys really pick, pick up on that. So not only does he struggle with tunneling, but keeping that glove away from his belt during his delivery – 
that might also tip pitchers and I mean big league hitters they they figure that stuff out. You know, Richard, something about your response about tipping pitches triggered something I thought about earlier in the week, which is a quick story that came out. It was in a flash. I think it was maybe one or two outlets that carried it. That once again, there were accusations that when opposition teams come to the Rogers Center, that there's some kind of chicanery going on, if you know what I mean. All three of you know I'm talking about the man in white or the man in black or whatever that was. How much credence did you guys give to that? Do you believe that there was something sinister going on, that the Blue Jays were trying to get an unfair advantage, or are most teams in baseball just equally paranoid when it comes to doing anything they can to win? I think every team is trying to steal signs however they can. I don't think that there was a... I don't think there was a guy in a you know man in white or a man in black or whatever that was that was in the outfield. I think I'd be surprised if that was if there was any truth to that story at all. Um, you never know though, because I honest to God, I think that every team in the league is trying to find any way they can. I mean, the Red Sox were using Apple Watches or whatever it was last season. That's true. Just to send stuff. So you know, uh, they're looking for. I mean, there's still guys like Robinson Cano that are getting caught cheating in this day and age. So to suggest the Blue Jays weren't trying to steal signs, then I, I think that would be stupid. Of course they were. Every team does, if you ask me. Yeah, every team, every, trend, every team tries to use their ballpark and, and stuff that they know to their advantage. But I think I remember when that whole rumor started, uh, Chris Tillman, I think it was back in 2012, got absolutely rocked. And he felt like, I, I believe hitters were hitting his curveball and his off-speed stuff really, really hard this this particular day when he when he started and he was so fresh. He's like, I, I'm pretty sure they knew what, what was coming that they, they just knew exactly what was coming. Their timing was perfect. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly where it started. I believe back in 2012 uh, when Tillman had a terrible start at the Rogers Center. I mean, he's always terrible at the Rogers Center. That's a different story in itself. But I, I think that's totally made up and, and whatnot. I don't think there's any shenanigans going on at the ballpark. It's a real testament to the human imagination. And arrogance as well, because I think it all came last week. The story surfaced because over the weekend, Chris Sale had, I think, the three tough innings, like the second to the to the through the fourth. And by the time the fifth rolled around, he was dominating again and, and basically put the, the Red Sox on course. But, uh, you know, whenever there's something unusual, our, our baseball imagination um, blossoms. And, you know, Chris, it's it's kind of sad in a way that you mentioned Robinson Cano, because I don't know about, I'm curious how you guys interpreted this, but something about him being suspended and, you know, caught and suspended for 80 games really leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. I mean, the Blue Jays fans should be cheering that Seattle being a bona fide second wildcard spot contender just lost its power bat and cleanup hitter but don't you guys think it's just horrible that someone that we thought maybe wasn't associated as one of the last remnants of the steroid era is now giving off that same odor that we've been trying to clean ourselves of for what seems like years now and uh rumors like this have been around Robinson Cano for a while now i believe his name was mentioned in biogenesis a few years ago and it, it, it sucks because Robinson Cano is on a clear path to Cooperstown. Um, he's probably going to get 3,000 hits by the time everything's said and done. He's like an eight, nine-time mm. All-Star, has a World Series ring. Um, but um, it, it's 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 just awful. It taints the game, and there's it, it's just it just sucks because Robinson Cano really has been one of the best second ba- basemen in the game for the game. really the past decade. Yeah, it feels like a violation of uh, of my trust in him and my belief in him that he was doing this all clean. Oh, yeah. Even he, even his days as a Yankee, even though he always 
was fantastic against the Blue Jays whenever they'd come to Rogers Center or then go to Yankee Stadium. It was just always jaw-dropping watching the things that he could do on offense and on defense and always wanted to believe that, that he was doing it clean. And, and when he first came up and, and started, that was really at the tail end of the whole steroid thing. It was a little bit after the Mitchell report, I believe, and, and whatnot. But uh, the only thing that also kind of sucks is even though that's a hit to Seattle, a, a direct competitor in, in the wildcard race for wildcard two with the Jays, makes things easier for Angels when they go play the, the Seattle Mariners will have a little bit of an easier time in intradivisional games. So give the, the Angels a little bit of an easier path to potentially winning some more ball games in their division instead of maybe splitting series and, and winning uh, one uh, every few series with the Mariners or two. That gives them an easier path to start and sweep a few more series or whatnot. I mean, Seattle's still a good team outside of their rotation. they got a really good offense and I know a few of us last week in person saw that offense uh, in Toronto, but uh, yeah, it makes things easier for the Angels. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Jays can respond and, and keep up with uh, Los Angeles now that they have a bit of an easier time. Yeah, I think Brennan, you hit something on the head for me too. Is that uh, it really makes me question how long he's been doing this? I mean, to have faith that he's had a clean career now is just it, you know, it's hard to believe that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it is disappointing because he's been a guy that uh, he had such a pure swing and you, and you don't want to see, even if it's a guy that plays for the Yankees, I don't want to see these, anybody who's kind of a hero in baseball to anyone go down with this sort of thing. You want to see these guys as, as positive role models and, and hopefully they're playing the game the right way. But, uh, you know, at least, um, at least he was caught and, uh, you know, he's going to have to, that'll be a, a big, asterisks on his career unfortunately well and it's it's a big league we know that uh, major league baseball is is played all over the world and you'd like to think that on the north american side there's leadership by example you know moral character in the game it's been a tough week for the game if you think about it one of their young rising reliever elite stars gets arrested and uh, this week one of their as you mentioned, Richard, so succinctly, uh, one of their great players on the path to Cooperstown will now be facing a lot of questions. And, and there is that violation, Chris, like you mentioned, of trust. Uh, Brendan, you talked about it right off the bat, that violation of trust that fans build with their team. And so it's not unusual to realize that when things are going great, we're all collectively filled with euphoria. But when they're going poorly, then we start getting into knee-jerk reactions. And with social media, you get it like literally on the minute. And the last few days, there have been a lot of uh, people clamoring for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And he's not making the argument any easier on Jay's management because I believe he had four hits today. He's up to 415 right now with the Fisher Cats. I ran a poll. I threw a little fuel to the fire. I won't lie. I ran a poll asking how soon he should be called up. Uh, over 800 folks voted, and the majority voted for him to be called up now. I want one of you guys to jump in and start us off on a real simple question. What would you do with Vlad Guerrero Jr. right now if one of you were the general managers of this, uh, the general manager of this club? See, I think there's a, just a, a lot of things to consider when it comes to answering this question. Uh, the main thing is, what does management think? of the Jays this year. Do they want them to compete or maybe they want them to compete in the future? Because right now the Jays are actually in a bit of a lucky situation. Say things just go completely poorly and the trade deadline's coming up and the Jays have a ton of guys on one-year one year contracts who are actually doing really well. 
and those are tradable assets that they can move at the deadline and acquire pieces that can help them in the future. So if the plan is to just take this year off, uh, use all their one-year contracts to bring something good in, maybe it's best to just keep Vladi Guerrero down in the minors, maybe until after the, the, the trade deadline. Because afterwards, when you tr- trade a bunch of guys, you'll have a ton of space for them. Right now, I just don't see where he would fit in the Jays lineup. Um, because you have Josh Donaldson, is he really going to split um, third base with Vladi Guerrero in his walk here? Is Justin Smoke really going to give up time at first base? And Steve Pierce is going to come back eventually. And unless they uh, find a way to get rid of Kendris Morales, I mean, he's also still on, on the team, you know? So there's a there's just a lot of things to consider, um, but Vladdy Guerrero is making Double A kind of look like a video game at this point. If it were up to me, I would, uh, as you just just said, he's making Double A look like a video game. I think that's a great way to put it. And so I think he's forcing the Blue Jays' hands to do something. The good news is, I agree with you as well. There's not a great obvious spot for him on the roster right mm-hmm. now. I mean, he could probably outperform pretty much anyone, but. Um, no. You know, it, he's they would the have second to make best. Them. Exactly, he's yeah. the second best hitter in baseball, other than Shohei Otani, right now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, there's a whole other debate there, but but uh, I do think he could help out. But I think what I would end up doing is I would send him to AAA like right now, and at least then you can buy another month or so. And if he keeps just absolutely mashing minor league pitching there, then then you don't. I don't think you have a choice anymore. I mean, the kids. The kid is absolutely on a daily basis. We're seeing highlights from him, but the, you know, on the other hand, the uh, people those think that it's an excuse that the Blue Jays don't want to call him up because they want to develop his defense. But that's a legitimate thing. I mean, if you want to call up a 19-year-old and make him DH, I understand. But if you're worried about his long-term development, there's some questions whether or not he can stick at third base. And if you want him to stick at third base, then bringing him up to the DH at 19 isn't going to help that. Um, exactly. You know, there's there's already people that think that he's going to end up as a right fielder or a first baseman. And, and he may very well if he hits this way, then it's not going to matter if he's a pinch hitter for that matter. But, but uh, you know, I, I understand why they don't want to bring him up to the big leagues right now, even though I'd love to watch him, but uh, I think you have to do something with him. So send him to Buffalo and see what he does there. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw right before we came on. <laughs> Kind of added, uh, I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or if he was trying to get Anthony Alford's attention, but he posted another uh, social media saying on his Instagram story, tagging Anthony Alford uh, in a video, which ended up being solved as being Jonathan Davis, who's Anthony Alford's brother-in-law, uh, on, on a bus. And, and a few people on my timeline were tweeting, oh, what, is he on the bus with, with the AAA team? Because he tagged Anthony Alford in it, and it ended up being Jonathan Davis. But no, he's he's going to AAA. That's the first stop before he gets to the major leagues because, as Richard mm-hmm. said, there is no position for him right now. Uh, and, Chris, I agree with you. But outside, like, there really is nothing more for him to gain being in the minors. His bat can definitely play in the majors right now. But with you just re-signing an agreement to keep Buffalo around as your AAA team for three more years, and a few weeks ago I saw an article that was talking about how the Bisons are already planning their marketing materials for when Vladdy Jr. makes it to Buffalo because that will add a ton of butts in the seat at Coca-Cola Field. you got to do it to keep your AAA team happy. I know that that may sound silly, but to keep that good relationship going with the Bisons, 
uh, he's going to stop in there, even if it's for only two weeks. You get a homestand or two in there for fans to come pat Coca-Cola Field to see Vladimir Guerrero Jr., to give him another look. And this front office is stressed through all the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. questions, the importance of AAA for them, and that they still think, and that they're changing it from the Anthopolis regime, where it was kind of more of a quadruple-A squad in places for guys who are kind of finishing out their careers, who may come up to the majors from time to time to fill in some roster spots. There's some high-end talent down there, and they're really transforming that into a, an integral stop on on the call-up to uh, the major leagues. you got to have a, a stop in AAA. That's what the front office seems to really believe in. So that and keeping the Bisons and their management happy, especially signing that new agreement to keep them around as your affiliate for a few more years. He's, he's going to stop in there first before he gets up to the majors. But he's ready. He is 100% ready. I think we can all agree mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, and the worst thing the Jays can do right now is to call him up to the majors and not give him consistent at-bats. And like you said, the, the, the worst thing the Jays can do is bring a guy up who's 19 and use him as a designated hitter. Obviously, you can hit, but maybe the, the Jays can kind of see if he can develop a third base. Maybe he can play a first base, maybe in the corners. But just bringing a kid up to just DH and not even get regular at-bats, I, I don't really see a purpose to it right now, especially the Jays. The Jays right now, they're close in the wild card, card race, but if the Jays don't get, improve their starting pitching, it's not going to go well moving forward. So I think yeah. even even keeping Vladdy Guerrero in the minors, that just makes the interest in the Jays rise for the fan base because they're all wondering, when is Vladdy going to be called up? You call Vladdy up right now, yeah, he's going to hit uh, 400 in the majors. But the Jays are eventually, <laughs> if the if the start if the starters don't pick it up, what what are they going to do? You know, two weeks later, well, Vladdy mania is complete has completely died out. Like um, Acuna got called up by the Atlanta Braves. He's he was the, he was the guy for for a couple weeks, a month, just a month ago. All the hype well, has exactly. kind of gone down a little bit, you know. So. The, the Jays just keeping um, Vladdy in the minors right now. That's just kind of milking the fans right now. And, and you know, Richard, Richard, you hit the, the nail on the head right there. There's still, like, them calling out Vladimir Guerrero Jr. may help the offense, but it's not going to solve every single problem that's ailing this mm-hmm. team right now that's barely keeping them above 500. They still got to solve their starting rotation, and, and there's still some issues there and some pretty big ones outside of outside mm-hmm. J-Hap. Uh, so, and you know what, until that starting rotation kind of kicks it into gear, if it ever does, uh, and I'm sure it will, but uh, hopefully it's not just one of those years where we're all saying, okay, well, maybe this this time through the rotation they'll get it going and they'll finally pitch up the snuff. But uh, until that rotation gets going and they get consistent uh, outing, kind of like 2016, which is what propelled them really to the playoffs in the wild card in mm-hmm. 2016 was that starting rotation. Until that gets going, they're really, and combined with, no consistent at bats position for Vladdy Jr. There's no reason to bring him up right now because there's still going to be that starting pitching issue that's ailing this team. Yeah, and to go back to one of the earlier points, guys, that I can't remember which of you made, but you know, I, I'm okay with um, I'm okay with the idea of him coming up at some point later this year. But it can, to me, you can bring him up in August or September, and he can DH then because at that point he's gotten in mo- most of a season playing third base and developing defensively. He's had a chance to stop in AAA too. I mean, maybe his play in AAA will warrant that he has to come up earlier than that. But as far as, like, losing the defensive time, I think it's okay once you get into that, you know, September, there's no minor league play for, for the most part anyway. So 
At that point, I think it's okay to have a DH uh, scenario. But before that, I'd like to see the guy continue to develop with a glove a bit too. And so unless there are injuries in Toronto, then I, I don't think it's wise to bring him up right now, even if we all want him to come up. You know, speaking of Alex Anthopoulos, the, who was just mentioned, and, and of course what Ronald Acuna is doing is really, really cool, considering that in some ways we can compare him to Guerrero as a top prospect that the organization feels could probably still use some seasoning, but Atlanta's doing some amazing things. How, how impressed are the three of you at what Alex Anthopoulos has been able to do in having Atlanta sitting first in the NL East after they lost, what was it, about a dozen draft picks because of a tampering case before the season started? Like, how fascinating is it to see what this former builder that we all loved before he decided to leave under these circumstances, the success he's having in Atlanta? How how gratifying is that, I would imagine? Well, the one thing I I would say to that is I'm a huge Alex Anthopoulos fan. I really was a big fan of the majority of the things. I am. I won't even deny it. But uh, one thing I will say is I don't know how much of an imprint he's been able to make on the Braves yet. I mean, I know he just makes some minor tweaks and things like that this off season, but he hasn't even been there a full year just yet. But I think he is the kind of, you know, I think he's a very, very intelligent baseball mind. And with all of the talented young tools that are in the Braves uh, organization right now, including, you know, the guys we've already talked about, I think uh, the Braves are going to be a serious, serious contender for the next five to 10 years. And uh, it'll be, it'll, you know, there'll be, maybe there'll be a team in the national league that cheer for it because of Anthopolis, but I think they're going to be good. Yeah, I mean, it's a a lot of it. Sorry, go ahead, Richard. Oh, no, no, go ahead. What I was going to add there was um, a lot of it is still John Coppolellis, a team that he built for a little while with a lot of his drafting and whatnot. I think the only difference that it would have made with the Atlanta Braves is how soon Coppolella compared to Anthopolis would have pushed the Acuna and Ozzy Albies chips. Maybe if it was still under John Coppolella's regime, Maybe it's possible that Acuna wouldn't have started the year or get called up as quickly as he did or Ozzy Albies or any of the young guys like Sean Newcomb and other guys in the rotation. It's possible that he would have kept them down a little bit longer. Uh, Anthopoulos was always known, even here, as being a guy who was very aggressive with his young chefs, and we all saw that firsthand in, in 2015 when six rookies started on the 25-man roster uh, at Yankee Stadium back in 2015. So... I think that's the only difference. I think it's just, a, I mean, Anthopolis is kind of enjoying and, and reaping the benefits of having such a, a good young core around him. It's filled it with some, some good veterans, and they're getting a few good bounce backs, too. Nick Marcakis is having an incredible Ooh, year. What a season. Uh, what back a season. to what he was. Yeah, back to more what, what he was when he first started out with the Orioles uh, back in the mid to late 2000s. So I think it's more of a matter of their success. A lot of it all could maybe be traced back to how uh, how quickly Anthopolis pushed the pushed the bill with Acuna and Ozzy Albies and, and Sean Newcomb and, and other new uh, young guys like that. Yeah, and the the Braves also have just a nice mix of veterans and young players. Like Ozzy Albies is, is absolutely raking right now. Uh, Dansby Swanson has made a couple of uh, tweaks at the plate, and he has been playing well. He's injured right now, I believe, but he's been playing really well. Obviously, Ronald Acuna is still a super prospect. Uh, the Braves called up a while ago um, a Canadian kid, Mike Soraka, who's been really, um, he's stormed up the minor league ladder. And of course, Nick Marquez is doing incredibly. And Freddie Freeman, he's just 
every year he's been really good. One of those classic mold NL players, eh, Richard, that people just don't talk enough about because he's in the senior mm-hmm. circuit. Uh, Freddie Freeman in the American League in a market like Boston and New York would be talked about with absolute reverence. He would be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes you can be a, a great player, but you just don't play in the right market. And maybe let's say you wanted to play in your home market like Canada and you didn't. And then all of a sudden you'd say something that's taken very, very, very poorly. And of course, I'm talking about (laughs) Joey Votto. I I want to quickly ask as a final question here on tonight's roundtable, I want to get your individual takes on what do you think happened with Votto? Do you really think he said this out of emotion and misspoke or is this maybe revealing a great, uh, you know, deep reservoir of, uh, of frustration that he's built up maybe in the way that baseball Canada has treated him or the lack of opportunity to become a blue Jay. I mean, how many years have we heard rumors about the blue Jays maybe spinning the, you know, kicking the tires and trying to get him here because it would be such a great natural fit. Give me, give me your, your perspective on that boys. Um, I've learned to just, uh, you never know what you're going to get from Joey Votto. Uh, (laughs) Just based on all the stories I've heard about Joey Votto is He's an interesting personality, maybe a little introverted. Um, so sometimes he says things that are just really odd and you, you just scratch your head to it. Um, this is just another case of Joey Votto just saying something that would come out of Joey Votto's mouth. Uh, the, what I've learned with game of baseball, just a lot of the great ones, they're, they, just, they're, they could be a little weird. And Joey Votto is just one of those guys. No exception. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. And when you get to the elite talent level, he is. You really only focus on yourself and yourself only, and continuing to make yourself better. So it, it kind of was disappointing, and, and more so from a standpoint of all the people that I've met throughout the years that have worked for Baseball Canada um, and, and trying to grow the game and having their biggest ambassador that's currently playing the game and Joey Votto make comments like that. I, I'm more so feeling feeling for them, like Alexis Brodnicki and, and Bob Elliott and, and all those people at Canadian Baseball Network. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of it's one of those things. I mean, Joey Votto's always been known as a guy who cares about himself and himself mm-hmm. only because he wants to make himself a better ball player. And that probably combined with the frustration of how bad it's been the past few years in, in Cincinnati, that's kind of a relationship that really – has been dragged on for too long and maybe needs to come to an end because it doesn't seem like the Reds are going to get much better over the next few years. No, I don't no, know who not. is going to rescue. I don't know who's going to rescue Joey Votto from from Cincinnati. That contract is is monstrous. He still yeah. could be useful a few years down the road with with his skills, the ability to take his walks and get on base. But I, I think it's a combination of things. I don't know if I. It, it, it may not. It, it may not be Hunter Green's 10-plus ERA over in the minors. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Exactly. So, I don't know. I, I, it kind of it bothered me a little bit more so for the people that I know who work for Canadian Baseball Network, and it mm-hmm. kind of screams, so like, maybe that's how you truly feel. And, and now you've said it, and it's kind of difficult to take back for a lot of people. But he seemed pretty sincere in his apology today, and I think he went on intentional talk or – or maybe on high heat with the Mad Dog. He went up something today and, and, and did a video apology and said that he felt bad. So he's trying to make the right moves to recover what he said. So I think we'll all forget this a few weeks or months down the road, especially if the Jays get better. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, for me, I, I can understand why he'd be frustrated with the Canadian 
program. I mean, not that that the, he should have patience for for, and he should be an ambassador for his country whenever he can. That's a privilege that so many of us would love to have. And when you're that talented, I think it's something that's important. But I understand that they've probably, you know, I don't know this, but I, I would suspect that they probably tried to milk anything and everything they could get out of him over the years. So I don't blame him for maybe having a bit of a sour taste in his mouth for, for that, because I'm sure he's probably just sick of like, hey, Matt, guys, quit calling me. I don't want to do this. So, you know, that part I get. And, and that part I can even forgive uh, a bit. The part that annoyed me was, you know, when he was asked about Paxton's no-hitter uh, at the Rogers Center, uh, James Paxton, of course, with the Mariners, um, you know, then he was just like, oh, I don't care about that. I don't give a rat's ass about that at all. And to me, that was just being petty at that point. And, and yeah. he was probably just having a bad day, and he maybe was just fired up and let it roll after he'd said, said some other things. But to me, that was like, come on, man, like, you got You know that that's cool that a Canadian threw a no hitter in Canada. Like that's never happened before. So all you had to say was, "Yeah, that's awesome. I'm happy for him." But instead, he just went and said something stupid. And fortunately, he did apologize today. And then it's kind of weird that, that you know the people have to apologize in this day and age for everything they say. He's allowed to have an opinion, but but I think as a Canadian, you know, any Canadian would apologize. So it's good that he did. <laughs> well, and I think there is a profound sadness that everything about this whole story. It makes you realize how how Blue Jays fans end up getting the short end of the stick. They got they got the short end of the stick because James Paxton was originally a Blue Jays draft pick, and there's a whole story behind how he was lost, and it all ends the same way with hubris on both sides, but more so on the side of the Blue Jays for not willing to spend the money to secure their first round draft pick, which is as a rule a good thing to do, right? And then you throw in that Joey Votto is a player who. If you look at his stats, turnovers, baseball card, guys, and it's absolutely ridiculous. He's got numbers befitting Jimmy Fox. Like, as far as I'm concerned, when I look at his stats, I think I'm looking at the 1950s or the 1960s because his on-base percentage, I believe right now playing in Major League Baseball, he has the best career on-base percentage of any player in Major League Baseball. Now, I believe he's a top 25 all-time. I believe he's a top 25 all-time now. Wouldn't that wouldn't that inflate your ego? So when you do have a bad day and you see all this attention about this no hitter in in Toronto, you stop and say, "What about me? Am I Swiss cheese? I've only been arguably one of the top three dominant players in baseball in the last decade. In fact, you could argue in the last three years, he's just been simply second to none." I, I always find it fascinating how we respond to this. I was obviously dismayed when I read the comments and the apology seems, by the way, very scripted. But I can't be surprised that someone is dominant and not a household name. You know, you can win your your country's top prizes, Lou Marsh trophies, whatever, but at the end of the day, you figure he deserves a little bit better. Well, there there really was nothing more to be added to that other than my little diatribe. (laughs) Um, I want to thank all three of you. You know, listeners will appreciate, obviously, what you're up to, and so it would behoove me to give you all a shameless plug. Let's go around the horn, starting with, uh, with you, Brendan, then you, Richard, and Chris. What are you up to, and how can fans of the show find you on social media? Yeah, you can uh, follow me at Panacar37 on Twitter, and I say this on uh, with Adam Corsair. You can follow me on Instagram at the same handle if you wish. Um, and then coming out either tomorrow or later this week on, on BP Toronto, a uh, piece on Young Gaver Solarte, and if you can keep up this uh, little bit of a power uh, uh, upswing that he's had so far this year. And eventually I want to tackle a piece on uh, Jaime Garcia. It's crazy. People are barreling him uh, almost 10% (laughs) of the time, I believe it was. He's getting hit 
like no tomorrow, and it's hard, hard oh, yeah. contact. So I'm thinking of a piece on Jaime Garcia, and if not that, then uh, I'll come up with something else when I sit down in front of my TV and watch a ball game. Um, I'm I'm just doing a little bit of everything right now. Um, I'm in grad school over here at Brock University, uh, doing some work for the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, doing some work for Prep Baseball Report Ontario. And if you want to follow me, at Richard Burfs, it's a great follow. I'll bring up the rear here. You can find me on Twitter. It's baseball for brains. The four is uh, the numbers, so baseball number four brains. Uh, and I'm one of the site experts and uh, contributor, regular contributors at jaysjournal.com. And we've got a pl- uh, big, healthy stable of writers that are doing a lot of work these days. So definitely check it out. And uh, there's always there's always new stuff every day. Gentlemen, I agree with everything all three of you just said wholeheartedly. So maybe we'll do this again, all four of us. And this time we'll open up the phone lines and. People can ask question about, uh, questions about the Blue Jays and that really awesome marijuana store that uh, Brendan and I were talking about. <laughs> I really appreciate you guys taking the time tonight. You've been listening to Brendan Panikar from Baseball Prospectus, Richard Burford from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network, and Chris Henderson from the Jays Journal. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and for joining me here on the Jays Journal. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Eric.